If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, just as you find your place there. I hope you were encouraged by Ishmael in uh, the church there in Kupurbugu today. Uh, I was up early this morning and had texted him. Of course, we communicate regularly. And uh, uh, I was texting him this morning and just letting him know that I uh, was encouraged uh, by him and their efforts and that we had uh, continued to pray for him. And I prayed for him this morning as he finalized his preparations for going there. And then uh, before I left to come here, not long before I left to come here, uh, he sent me the videos that were made this morning. Uh, they had finished their services and he had sent those. And um, Booney and Lauren, uh, grateful for y'all being able to get those loaded up and uh, just be an encouragement. Matthew chapter 18, um, there's a whole lot here, okay? So just let me say that. And for those of you who uh, are familiar with the uh, Matthew 18, you know that. Um, because of the way we'll treat the text today, I want us to hear it in its entirety. Um, so... If you will, just prepare your hearts to follow along and listen uh, to God's Word. I mean, He gave it to us to read. He gave it to us to hear. And that's what we want to do today. So if you will, follow along uh, because we're going to deal with the whole chapter. And certainly you already know that that will not be in great detail in every area. But it is a whole, not just the chapter, but there's a larger teaching section here. But for this part of the teaching section... I want us to hear it together. Next week, Booney will be in chapter 19, uh, and he will be covering the whole of that, and it is all caught up in this, in this teaching that uh, Jesus is doing. So, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you uh, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one uh, that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven 
that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you recall, when we began our series in Matthew, we mentioned that Matthew's gospel has certain clearly identifiable sections of teaching. And we're beginning one here today. We have been giving attention to Jesus' teaching on what it means to take up His cross and follow Him. Uh, I hope that we've understood that it is more pointed, more direct, and yes, even more demanding in terms of actual commitment than we even want to admit. One of the ways we try to soften these demands And the call to these demands, uh, if one is to actually even try to follow, uh, is to speak against legalism. Which let me say this as clearly as I can. The effectual call of God and the transforming work of the gospel and the hearts of believers appropriated by the Holy Spirit is anti-legalistic. So if we even begin to think that the demands of the gospel are either legalistic or some form of legalism, 
we begin to try to check off boxes of what it means to be a good Christian, we're often drawn to that. Or the demands that the gospel are for just some super Christian. In other words, when we are talking about taking up our cross and following Him, that only super Christians understand that and do that. If that is our feeling, then we misunderstand the gospel. The gospel isn't in any way disassociated with the call and the demands for discipleship. In fact, the gospel is good news because there is an effectual call. We talked about it this morning even in our assurance of pardon and we've made mention of it and our songs have just been, have resonated with this assurance that comes from knowing Christ. That's because that is good news and there is an effectual call and there is a clear objective work that the Holy Spirit does that takes place in the life of disciples. And it only takes place in the life of disciples. It won't take place in one who has no faith. And for the person who has faith and who is a disciple, it necessarily will take place. It's good because it ensures redemption and forgiveness and eternal life. In other words, embedded in the gospel is the certain assurance of this goodness. It removes any uncertainty. And I believe that this is particularly important to our text today, and hopefully we'll see that as we begin to work through some of this text. When Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then again when he wrote to Galatians, We ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul was removing any possibility for us to confuse our efforts in law-keeping with earning justification, or, or rather being saved. Now he's putting his finger on the grace of God. And I want us to hear that today. He's putting his finger on the grace of God and his divine work. An election, calling, justification, sanctification, glorification. As the sole means of salvation. And in doing that, he's pointing to a recognizable act or evidence that this work has been and is being accomplished. Hear what Paul says again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. That evidence is faith. And faith manifests itself. We see it in many ways in the course of our life. In other words, if that faith in Christ is there, there, are, there is evidence that that faith exists. It's not just something that is said, it's not just a profession, but there is evidence of it. And over the course of the next several weeks, as we work through these next chapters, we are going to see and consider some of this evidence that is directly 
and necessarily associated with faith as we give some attention to life under this kingdom authority. So here's our aim for this morning. We want to identify an irreplaceable kingdom ethic. That's our first aim. So if you're taking notes and you want to kind of track along. And then we want to begin to see how this ethic impacts community life. We're here. We are, we, we are representative. Those who have trusted Christ and who are gathered here, who are believers, we are representative of this community. And if you're wondering what community Jesus was talking about and what community that, that I'm even talking about now, we're talking about a messianic community, the church. Matthew was writing to the church. Jesus, we saw two weeks ago, pointed to the fact that he was building a church. Not a building, but he was building a church. He was building a community of people. He's building a community of people, building a body that, Adam, you so aptly put, that are so connected together that we are a real body. And, and, the, and, the only way, and, the, and the only way that he could express that was through the Holy Spirit expressing it through Paul as if it is a member of a physical body. That's how we are connected and related together. It's that kind of community. And remember Christ told Peter that based upon the work of God in him, talking about in Peter, enabling him to confess what he could not have confessed and would not have confessed otherwise. And the reality of that confession, and that confession, remember, is Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and what that means. And Jesus discloses what that means by telling them what he must do, what must happen, that he necessarily must die. And then he will continue to disclose this with with more full disclosure. In fact, we're about six months away in the text from him being in Jerusalem, and it is going to be fully disclosed in Jerusalem what that meant. Because it is there in Jerusalem before his people, at least a million or more of them, who are able to see that crucifixion, and see all the evidences of the fact that he was the Son of God, because if they hung around for just a few days, word spread through Jerusalem like wildfire that this one who was crucified has now been raised from the dead. In other words, he's no longer in the tomb. Whatever you may want to think, whatever you may want to happen to him, he is not in the tomb. And then there's at least 120 people and then even more who are going around giving evidence of the fact that he's not in the tomb because they have seen him. So this is the kind of, this is, this is what's going to happen as this is fleshed out. So what is this irreplaceable kingdom ethic? Well, let's look at it. And we have to back back up. Back back up in chapter 17 and you'll remember here what's taking place. Jesus and his disciples, remember, were in Caesarea Philippi. Okay? They are in Gentile land. They leave there. They go back to Capernaum. 
When they arrived there, he and his disciples arrived there, remember, beginning there in verse 24, uh, the collectors, the tax collector for the temple tax, approached Peter uh, and asked, does, does, does your teacher pay this tax? Well, he knew that he hadn't paid the tax because they kept record of who paid the tax. He knew that he hadn't paid the tax and he wanted to know, does he pay the tax? And, and Peter says, yes. As far as we know, they had paid the tax before. But he says, yes, he pays the tax. So he goes into the room and Jesus asks this question. Uh, he says, what do you think, Peter? What do you think about what? Well, notice what he says. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And Peter responded, from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Sons are free. They don't owe the tax. That's exactly right. He answered correctly. Kings do not assess their family with the taxes. The others, the citizens, pay the taxes. And then Jesus' response, and notice what he says in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. We talked about that and we ended Two things are happening here, at least, that Jesus is saying. The first thing is, is that Jesus is just unveiling before Peter again who he is and what he is about. That's my father's house. And actually, if you would go on and we we'll look in just a few more chapters, we're going to hear where he says, this is my house when he's cleansing the temple and he goes into Jerusalem, he says, this is my house. So if it's my house, I don't owe the tax. If it's my father's house, I'm his son, I don't owe the tax. He's at least pointing Peter to that. And he doesn't flesh it all out, he just simply leaves it there. The sons are free. But I'm not going to give an offense. So he goes on and he pays that. The other thing is, is that Jesus does this in such tremendous humility. Notice that He miraculously provides for the payment. In humility, He sends Peter to pay the tax. But He miraculously provides for the payment. In the same way, He will miraculously provide for the payment for sin. We have read about that this morning. We sang about it. He doesn't owe that debt for sin. We know that. But he, his sacrificial payment took care of the debt for others. And he does that in humility. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Hear this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to hold on to that for just a minute because it's going to be important as we press into what happens here. The disciples come and what do they do? Well the very first thing that happens is the disciples come now and they are wanting to know who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark's gospel tells us that they are, that they are, are, are grumbling and and, and Jesus knows what's going on. Luke's gospel tells us the same story. So just understand that it is important in the gospels. This is repeated three times for us so that we can understand that they were struggling and grappling with this. And then Jesus addresses this. He addresses it with them. Jesus points them to this right there in the middle of the text. We see they're asking this question and Jesus they ask Jesus a question, and He doesn't give any kind of response initially. What does He do? Notice what He does. There's a child close by. He takes that child, and He puts that child in front of them. And here's what He says. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never. Now I want you to catch this. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's talking about his disciples. And Peter's included in that. And Peter is the one that he has shown these great things to. And Peter's present. He says, he just tells him this. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus points to the child. Not because the child is innocent. He's not saying that all children are believers. That's not what he's saying. He's not pointing to them because of their deep faith. He points to the child because the child displays a heart of humility. What's the child not interested in? The child is not interested in climbing the ladder to social status. That's what the disciples were trying to do. They were taking the ethic of the world and imposing that upon the kingdom. And Jesus says, Stop it. In so many words, he is saying stop it without saying stop it. And even in humility, he is trying to help them see that ethic doesn't work in this kingdom and this child represents that very thing. The child isn't interested in climbing to social status. The child will probably at some point in time become an adult and may very well be exactly like the disciples, and that may be in the forefront, but not in the mind of that child. He says, your climbing the top of the ladder doesn't work in the kingdom. The rungs of the ladder in the kingdom are humility and service. How do we know that? Well, we read it when Paul is speaking, writing to the church at Philippi. The rungs of the ladder in the kingdom are humility and service. Why is humility so critical? What's so great about humility? Why does God rank it as such a high quality of human greatness? Why is it being pointed to in verse 4, whoever humbles himself 
like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's been said by someone, it's because humility is the only state of the soul that allows us to accurately perceive and value the truth and the glory of God. I want you to hear that again. It's because humility is the only state of the soul that allows us to accurately perceive, in other words, see it, understand it, value the truth and glory for what they really are. Only the humble can truly see. Only the humble can truly see God. Only the humble will truly see the value of God and His holiness. Only the humble-spirited person will acknowledge the glory of God in Christ. Only the humble will value the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. Only the humble. Listen to some of the things we hear about humility from Scripture. Proverbs 15, 33, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Now, if you don't think that's true, go back and look at Philippians chapter 2 again. He humbles himself to the point of obedience, even to death on the cross. And then what is the next thing that is said? And then he is highly exalted and his name is above every other name. What precedes that? Now we know that we know that he came from glory. We know that he is the glory. But recognize that him being the son and the work that he had to do, he humbled himself first and then he is highly exalted. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. In other words, that's the reward of humility. Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, Paul writes, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling this effectual calling that you've received, worthy of the faith that you have been given, worthy of this profession that you profess, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond, in the bond of peace. Philippians 2.3 do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. That's the kingdom ethic. The kingdom ethic is this, is that the least are the greatest. That's the ethic. In God's kingdom, the least are the greatest. Not the greatest are the greatest. We're not seeking after being great. We're not trying to climb some rung to greatness in God's kingdom. One of the struggles and tensions that I've had with denominational politics is because of that very thing. 
One of the struggles that we see oftentimes in the body, in our local bodies, are those who are seeking to be in places of authority and in power. What are they looking to do? They are looking to climb a, a ladder that is equal to the social status ladder that we seek to climb in the world. They try to take that and they try to take it and lay it over the kingdom's work. And we are representative of the kingdom's work. And at every point that fails, at every point it breaks down, and at every point it is it destroys. Why? Because it is inconsistent with what Jesus says about his kingdom, even to his disciples, even to these 12 men that he has handpicked and selected, even to these 12 men that he will has and will charge, even to these 12 men that will go out and do great works and give their lives for him, he is telling them that unless they become like this child, in other words, unless they reflect the heart of humility, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you, at every turn in the course of this gospel, I have been hit head long with Jesus and his direct way of speaking about what it means to be a disciple. And he does not mince words. The kingdom ethic calls for genuine care for believers. And this is how it is going to begin to flesh out. So if there's no social status in the kingdom, how does that shape how we operate in the context of community? That's a reasonable question. Now, in the world... And, and with the climbing of the social ladder and with all the other things that are in place in the course of the world and in the world's ethic, it is clear what we have to do to get to wherever it is that we've decided we want to go. Ever how high that is. There is a prescription for getting there. Okay? But if there's no social status in the kingdom, if we are all on equal playing field in the kingdom... And there is not, there's, not this, there, there's not this grab and pull to get up, but we're walking in humility. How does that shape how we live in the context of community? And first notice what Jesus immediately states there. Notice what he says. One, he says in verse 5, whoever receives one such child. Now he's not talking about this child that's in the midst. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, so he's not talking about receiving children. I, I do believe, and I've, heard, and I've read it and I've heard it said, I, I do think that you can tell a whole lot about a person by how they relate to children. I, I, I do believe that. Um, we have, uh, and, and Brian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you for just a minute. We all did the other, day, uh, other night anyway. Um, in our connect group, uh, Providence is crawling around. And every time she crawls around to Brian's chair, whenever he's teaching, he stops and he lays his hand on her head. It says a lot about how we relate to children. He doesn't disregard her presence. He doesn't try to act like she's not there. 
He doesn't act like he's bothered whenever she's crawling around and doing all the things that she does in the course of that. Why? Because we love providence. It says a whole lot about the way we deal with children. But here Jesus is not talking about that. But here's what he's saying. In the same way that Brian was laying his hand on Providence's head and patting her and looking down and smiling with her is the way that we are to deal with one another in the course of our relationships in the body of Christ. That's what's important. That's what he's talking about. What does he say? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus immediately states that those who come with the spirit of humility are to be received. And more than just received... They are to be protected. In this context, it appears that the protection is provided in humility as a means of protecting them from traveling down that path where pride takes over. That's this context of humility. So we're trying to, we're in, in this community, we are seeking to hold each other to walk rightly in humility in every way. Or to come into the kingdom with the world's philosophy of prosperity and progress. We're trying to keep each other from that. One of the most dangerous persons in a church is a person who wants to be recognized. That is a dangerous, dangerous person in the life of a community. Second, notice that the warning that Jesus gives regarding the care of the community. In other words, in our in our efforts to care if we cause one to sin. In other words, lest we walk in humility, we will cause someone to sin. But if we cause one to sin, listen, it is better for you if you do that. It is better that you be drowned at sea. In other words, the consequences will be worse than to have a weight that you cannot manage tied around your neck and you be dropped into ocean and left to drown. That's how serious this situation is. And then Jesus goes on to say that we should expect temptation. Notice in verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. In other words, that there is this woe that Jesus places upon the world and the temptations. He says, for it's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Here's what he's saying. He said, recognize that as we live in the context of this community, as we live in the context of this community, that temptation will come. It came to him. Temptation will come. But he's saying, understand that you can also become the temptation and the stumbling block. And you guard against that. To what degree? Well, just look at what he has to say in verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. You say, man, that's just, that's just strong language. No, it's strong language because he is pointing to something that goes back to humility. Only the humble person, only the person who walks in humility 
is able to perceive the glory and truth of God. Only the person who walks in humility is going to also look at and hold up the holiness of God. One of the greatest internal dangers for a believer is to lose the sense of the holiness of God. What do I mean? Well, when we lose the sense of the holiness of God, we fail to see the importance of holiness in our own lives. And how does that fit this text? Well, notice what he says. It's clear that if your hand or your foot, in other words, you have failed, you have failed to perceive and to understand the glory of God in His holiness. It's critical, so critical, that you would need to, if you would, to cut a hand off, to gouge an eye out, to cut a foot off, whatever it is, to keep from going to hell. In other words, to ensure, to ensure getting into the kingdom. Now, we already know, we've just said, trusting in Christ and being a disciple is not based upon checking some box of our do's and don'ts. It's not about legalism. What is it about? He's pointing to the fact that a disciple, because this disciple has been born again by the Spirit of God, if in fact he is a disciple, and he has this faith that God has given him to believe in the way that he has shown Peter, that he shows us that this one will in fact look to the holiness of God and will long for the glory of God in his or her own life as he or she walks in holiness. And if this is lost, and if it's completely lost where it doesn't matter, what Jesus is saying is, it's an unbeliever who is subject to what? Subject to hellfire. That's how serious this is. The holiness of God is lost to anyone, then that person's heart for personal holiness goes away, which means that person was never a believer. You see, all this thing is being fleshed out now for us to see, for us to see and to recognize what's going on here. So to what extent are we to care for the community? Let's press on into the text. We are to care to the extent that we encourage each other to walk in humility by doing the same ourselves. We're to care for them as we seek to hold up the holiness of God and walk in holiness, giving careful attention to our hearts and one another's hearts. We seek to protect them so that they are not lost. Look at verse 10. See to it, or see that you do not despise one of these little ones. In other words, that you do not become a stumbling block to one of these little ones. And then he gives two reasons why we need to make sure that we are careful here and how we care for each other in this way. He said, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of the Father who is in heaven. Notice that. He gives two reasons. First, it's because their angel always sees the face of God. We don't have a lot of time to spend here. 
question is, is does this mean that every believer has an angel or a guardian angel? I don't believe we can build that case. But here's what we do know about angels. We looked at it whenever we were in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, speaking of the angels, this question is asked, it's a rhetorical question, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal life? There is some connection between the celestial beings that God has gathered around Him in His throne and their ministry to those who are being protected and held for eternal life. And the psalmist said it this way, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers Him up. So what is the point of the text? I believe that the point of the text seems to be that we should be careful in how we care for our brothers and sisters because they are valued enough by God that He grants them celestial protectors. And if God has that kind of value for them, then we as brothers and sisters in Christ should recognize that value and then deal with each other accordingly. And then the second thing Jesus says Notice, and he does this uh, by bringing this parable forward. And you'll, you'll find this interesting. If you look at this parable or the similar parable in Luke, it is in the context of seeking out the lost. But I want you to hear it here and how Jesus uses it here. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them is going astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will. This is, this is the answer to the question. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. One of what little ones? One of his children. We should care for them because God cares for them enough that He sustains them and holds them and keeps them. And if He holds them and keeps them, and we already know from John's Gospel that Jesus doesn't lose any one of those that God gives Him. So if Jesus is not releasing them and letting them go, and if God is intent on keeping them to the end, how should we be about one another? We should care for each other to the extent that we ensure that we make it to the end together. In other words, as the shepherd goes after them, we should take the same kind of care and protection of them. Question. How do I care for my brother or sister when they have offended me? It's, it's getting deeper. In the context of community life, all of these things are coming about. Just a few observations. First, let me say that this text is maybe one of the most practical instructions in all of Scripture. And I find that interesting, given the context and the significance of the subject matter. I hope we already get it. It's humility driving this care and this protection 
because they are cared for and protected by God, valued by God, have been saved by God. In fact, if they're saved, and if they're not, we're still loving them to the end to, to, to see them come to believe and to know God for His glory. Okay? In that context, in the life of that community as it's fleshed out, it would be reasonable to say, if, if I'm offended, how do, I, how do I care for someone who has offended me? The second thing is, I believe its importance is paramount in that every person here and will, at some point in time, be offended or offend. So much is at stake when our relationships become fractured. It really is. Not only is our own spiritual and relational health at stake, but the spiritual and relational health of the entire community is at stake. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been in a situation where there was a break in relationship that wasn't reconciled and it just seemed to fester and spread throughout the body and you've got people talking? All of those kinds of things are, are, are creating stumbling blocks for which it's already been said would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you thrown into the bottom of the ocean and drowned. I don't know how much more serious it could be than that. When we fail to walk in humility and love and care for one another at this level, we're putting the health of the entire body at jeopardy. That's huge. In which case, we are then, as I said, becoming a stumbling block to the body. And we've already seen how serious that is. There's a third observation here, and then we're going to look at this text. Is Jesus is clear on how this is fitted, I want you to catch this, how this is fitted for the heart of those who profess His name and relationship with Him. Walking in humility and reconciling in that manner is so important that one who fails to submit to it and to seek wholeheartedly to reconcile and to be reconciled are subject to be dealt with, and we're going to see in a moment, as a lost person. You see how, you, 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 I mean, all this is fitted together for the body in humility to give evidence to give evidence of the reality of salvation. To give evidence of the reality of that one boony as you led us through there a while ago, uh, to, who has been forgiven and now forgives. So let's walk through that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, if he sins against you, she sins against you, you go privately and you talk with them about it in humility. Without demands. Without ultimatums. Just in humility to go and to talk and to work through it to the end of being reconciled. And if your brother or sister, and I'm going to include sister in there, listens to you, you have gained a brother. Okay? What if that doesn't work? It's very practical. If that doesn't happen, if they don't listen, if reconciliation doesn't take place, well then you take two, one or two others along with you that every charge 
may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's pretty practical. It's laid out very well. Jesus is the one who's teaching this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, and all of this is being done in this context of love and humility, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. The worst discipline that the church is authorized to render toward its worst offender is excommunication. This just simply means he's not welcome to be a member of the church, to partake of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because he's acting as an unbeliever. Because the one who forgives is the one who has been forgiven, and the one who has been forgiven forgives, works toward reconciliation. It means that Christians love him not as a brother, but loves him in the same way that Jesus loves sinners, and he laid down his life for them. Now forget who said this, but someone else said it. This didn't originate with me. He said, whether this seems harsh depends on what you compare it with. In the Old Testament, God's law for the earthly government prescribed for Israel the penalty was not excommunication. You know what it was? Death. In Israel, if these things didn't work out, you weren't cast out of the community. You were killed. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, if your brother entices you secretly, enticing you to do what? Enticing you to follow another god saying, let us go and serve other gods. You know what happened to him? You shall kill him. That's what it says. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. That's the reason that they would gather around with stones, and they would stone someone to death. They all took party in doing away with that life. And I thought about that. Because in the beginning, all sin was punished how? Capital punishment, death. In that day that you eat of it, Jesus said what? You'll surely die. Seem harsh? No, that's not harsh. Man, it's loving. It's loving. He goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to our protection and care of the body for those to be out of the community that are not acting and living as though they belong to the community. For the sake of the community and for the sake of the individuals. So we loose and we bind. And then finally, there is another irreplaceable element in this kingdom ethic. Anybody want to take a guess at what it is? 
is forgiveness. Is forgiveness. Here's what's interesting to me. We read the passage. We don't have time to dissect it. But here's what's interesting. And we see it in this parable that Jesus gives. Is the one who had been forgiven who doesn't forgive. I want you to notice that's the story. We understand that in the parable. Notice in verse 33. And we'll close here. This was the master's response to this one who didn't forgive. He asked this question, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, Trade on God in righteous indignation. He delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt, which it was already clear that he could never pay. And then Jesus says this again, I can't get away from these direct statements. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Now, who's he talking to? His disciples. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God in Christ? And we should be grateful for the body of Christ and the community and the grace that God shows us and demonstrates to us through this kind of community. Now, how does that flesh out for us today? We'll close with these two statements. For the one who hasn't professed Christ, you haven't trusted Christ yet, Christ died for the sinner that you might be forgiven. And apart from that forgiveness, and apart from His work for that forgiveness, you will spend eternity separated from God. Believer, demonstration the manifestation of the faith that we profess will at least, okay, at least, there's more. We're going to go on and hear more. At least works in us in such a way that we demonstrate grace to each other and forgive. And we do it because we love each other we desire to care for each other. Why? Because God values His children.